Try not to tod this up. Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Welcome to the Coffee Clutch Crew, The Magicians, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives with episode 12, The Secret Sea. Written by L. Lipson and David Reed and directed by Shannon Coley, IMDb is giving this an 8.3. The synopsis is Quentin yells at a plant, Margot stares at a fish. Made absolutely no sense when we did our spoiler section on last week, but now it makes complete sense. Yeah, this is a little better than some of the previous <laughs> ones. It's tying back in. We also have to mention up top, we got our Monster Elliot shirt of the day, Wreck Him Up, which shows a raccoon playing pool. I want all of these shirts. Agreed. So the critic said there's quite an intriguing feel to this whole episode, as there are some seismic plot points being delivered, but also with these emotionally compact scenes. And that definitely speaks to my prose for the episode. I thought there were smoother connections between the storylines. They've been consolidating and tying in together all season long. It delivered answers to some of our plot lines we've been wondering about, some of those open-ended questions. And there were some really great emotional portrayals. I thought that was the real heart of the episode. For instance, where Quentin has to make his argument Hmm. to the sentient plant. I just thought Jason Ralph acted that so well. I imagine myself trying to be there with cameras on me, just having this incredibly deep emotional scene where I'm talking to a plant. Mm. Well, actors go through that a lot. I mean, if you think about Amelia Clark when she's playing Daenerys and she's having those moments with a dragon, she's talking to a tennis ball. So, <laughs> But at least in your mind, you can picture the dragon, a yeah. dragon, a living creature. Here, you're literally picturing a flower. I agree with you. Jason did an amazing job in this scene. And actually, on Twitter, one of the writers said right before the episode that he's going to deliver something amazing. I think for him... If I was to guess where he went to in his mind is that he was talking to himself because in reality, he is actually reminding himself or or arguing with himself of why he still does love Fillory. It's like he's talking to the 12 year old version of himself. And I can't wait to break down that scene. There's so much fun psychological stuff happening there. I have to do this every morning. When I wake up, I have to argue with myself. I still love Christina. No, it's not over. It's There's still reasons. <laughs> yeah. Well, in addition to that, I loved the intensity of the interactions between the God twins. I mean, we've been talking about Hale Appleman's performance as the Elliot monster all season, but now Stella Maeve's performance as the sister twin. Oh, she did amazing. Very convincing. I think it would have been easy to, by mistake, do this wrong and just go deadpan and think that's the way to go. She did a perfect mixture of deadpan, pain, anger. Scariness. Scariness, for sure. (laughs) They made her right away. And maybe perhaps because we had knowledge that she's stronger than the brother. But they made her look, feel, and sound like the lead sibling. And the explanation that they gave us last episode was so on point. Where you have this other brother, his main focus has really just been about getting her back. And in a way, it seems like he almost idolizes her. And yet perhaps is a bit afraid of her at the same time. Plus, I know, Jason, that you just want to mention the badassery of Dean Fogg. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, finally we get Dean Fogg kicking some ass. With his Inspector Gadget suit. Which makes sense. It, I'm so glad it didn't come out of nowhere. Immediately we're reminded of when he was speaking to his suit, the creator of his suit, and there was that one that she wasn't done with yet, and he was hoping so badly that she was. Well, that must have been that suit. There's times where the magicians nails it in the way that I really hope they will, that there's been tracks laid for these points so long ago, and they come back around to pay off in this really awesome way. This is one of those scenes. If Dean Fogg was going to go into a fight, an uneven fight, this would be the way he would do it, in a slick way. He'd have some tricks up his sleeves, and then also he would traverse this obstacle, which is the book stacks. With, I'm thinking of if I was playing a video game, you have three red dots on your map. Those are the bad guys and how you're going to traverse them, take them out without being seen. Beautifully done and made little puppies. (laughs) Absolutely. I do have to say at the top here, though, that I have a couple of cons. What's tricky about this is a lot of them aren't cons for this episode. There are things that came to a head here. I've sort of been talking about them for a while that the past couple of episodes, it started to feel like the pacing was off for me, that there were just too many balls in the air and unanswered questions, and I was worried what they were going to do with it. You really have to go one of two ways. Either you let them drop or hang on until next season, or you try to answer them all really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I felt like some things were rushed to try to get to a conclusion in this episode. I was really happy that we got answers. But the format of it sometimes wasn't perfect. I was worried about that too, especially coming off of last season, which still is my favorite season in The Magicians, season three that is, where the last episode was so quick. We were waiting for this crescendo for so long. It's the finale and the fireworks and there's a little bit of flair and then it dies out so quick you didn't have a chance to really taste it. I think, and I don't know, next episode it might be laid out perfectly, but we just got the sister. Yeah, and on top of the big exposition that we had last episode from the binder, which we totally forgave because Matt Frewer's performance was amazing, but it's a lot of information to put at you. Now they come in with a lot of information about the library, with further layout of whatever it's been up to, with the monster twins. Really, I don't think that's going to play out enough. I think we got a lot of the interaction we're going to see in this episode, and I for sure wanted more of that. I liked the slow tease out to a certain point, but now looking back, if this is going to be it, I wonder why there wasn't a little more development in some of the earlier episodes. I think by episode eight, they should have had the sister come, and then there would be the trials with, we really get to see how badass they are, right? But then we get to see Monster Elliot starting to distance himself emotionally, thinking this is too far. I am falling for the humans and give it that breath, that time to grow in him where he can make that hard decision. Do I continue on this path with my sister? Do I join these magicians and help them? It's the age old show don't tell, right? And we had to tell here by having the sister say, you've spent too much time in this area. You're starting to like the humans. If we laid enough tracks, she shouldn't have to say that. Right. And there's a bit of that going on here that we really need the information spelled out for us. Whereas other storylines I, I look back on from this season and I, I wonder why we spent time. Why do we spend time running after the Napster in the middle of the woods? <laughs> 
or the whole Hedgewitch side plot that I'm sure will come back around, but there was just a lot of things. The Poppy storyline. They could have X'd it. That I'm wondering other... what they were put in there for. It, it kind of feels like they just had tons of great ideas. Yes. A- and they really wanted to get to them all, but I don't know if they were placed. Yeah, I would have liked to see more of our Elliot and what he's going through inside of, inside of his own mind palace. You know, that would have been nice to sprinkle that in every so often. Make it more centralized on the monster, and that's fine. We won't get bored. Mm-hmm. Speaking of spell it out, spell, it seems that I have once again spelled something wrong on Twitter. <laughs> What's unfortunate is that if you were talking about real world things, you would have spelled it right, because fog in real life is F-O-G, the weather fog, but Dean Fog has two Gs. Sorry about that. You know, this is funny enough because this comes up often. Not this month's Patreon bonus, but next month's, we are going to do a spelling contest, me and Christina. And a she's going to. Spelling bee? Yeah, she's going to win, but I think it's going to be pretty <laughs> hilarious and self deprecating, but I'm going to enjoy it. We're going to go grade by grade, grade levels of words, and then we're going to see what I can spell. And then I'm going to challenge her with some freaking long words and see. No, but that's where you're going to get me because you're just going to pull out the most ridiculous (laughs) words that I'll have no idea. (laughs) My first word should be the, just so you know. No. No, we're not starting (laughs) at first grade level. Too easy. Two other things that I want to bring up. I was a little confused by the Margot plot line this episode. And I don't want to be misunderstood. I do like what they're trying to develop here with Josh. And I do like seeing this side of Margot. But coming off of an episode where she was really strong and badass and reinforced that part of her main purpose is to get back so she can help Elliot. Yeah. She's doing all of this to save Elliot. And then she has to relinquish that role to even go along and then give up the ice axes she worked so hard for so that she can stay back and look at a fishbowl. And I understand it's bigger than that. It's not just a fishbowl. It's Josh. And she is in love with Josh. She's showing that vulnerable side of herself. It's okay for her to feel those things too. But maybe it's just the way that it was executed. I agree with you. I see what they're trying to do. So let's table that. Mm-hmm. The timing on this. We just saw her be such a kick-ass queen. King, excuse me. Mm -hmm. She's still king to me, people, okay? She got sorrow and sorrow. This is her journey to use it. I'm offended that someone else has it in their hands. Mm -hmm. It's not for them. But let's take it back off the table and let's try to see what the writers were doing. They were trying to show that she has to make a decision of saving her loved one, Elliot, or being there to save her loved one, Josh. When you put it that way, that's pretty. That's a pretty epic decision she has to make. But the delivery, I think, was wrong. And I think even a step deeper, it's her strength and independence, her ability to face difficulty, danger, the way she's been doing all second long without a thought. If it's one of my people, I'll step into that fire willingly because that's my role, because I am High King. And I do get the entire purpose of her quest this last time was to realize she can be all of those things. She can have this softer side that's more exposed, that's not afraid to say, I love Josh. It's not just that we bang occasionally the way she was trying to front to Alice. And that was a really great emotional interaction, by the way, when Alice said that to her. So it's her independence and her identity versus her love and the other side of her. But I think 
we've done enough establishing of that. And I think we're also getting that kind of exploration with Katie and what's going to happen with that story. And we'll get there eventually. And so I think it's it's really just a matter of execution that was kind of bothering me. And again, the timing on it. But we are getting way deep into this and we're going to cover some more when we get to plot. First, let's talk new faces and places. We actually didn't have that many. We got a sort of meeting with a character named Cyrus, played by Craig Haas, who is a library supervisor. He's the one that notifies Everett of the intrusion into the poison room and is asking, what should we do about this? Do we just leave them in there? And we also got to meet Gordy, played by Alex Weed, the hedge doctor, actually the same one that Katie brought in to try to care for Pete. Yeah, so not technically new, but we got more. Reintroduced, yeah. yeah. For magic, we found out about the Florian dying fish, a species that lives only a few days and needs constant eye contact in order to live. And of course, if that was real life, I bet uh, children around the world would be like, I want that one. And the parents would be like, no, we can't get that one. No. (laughs) It's hard enough to take care of a fish. (laughs) Then we got the Reservoir, which Plover renamed the Secret Sea, its more common title and was the magic water reserve that we heard about being hoarded by the 13th King of Fillory. I really enjoyed that storyline. And the visuals on that were really oh, cool, beautiful. too. Yeah. It sort of reminded me of the habitats that we get in Fantastic Beasts when we yes. go into Newt's case. Absolutely. You could see a little bit of the top edges, but it's this expanded world. And on the heels of that, the Drowned Garden, which is growing right next to the reservoir and contains the plant antidote to the protective curse Martin placed on the secret sea. Now, when you hear Drowned Garden, if you were reading about this in a book, and if they weren't very descriptive, and they just let your imagination see it, would you see it as being in the castle? No. Me neither. And not looking like that either. It's a little too cheery and traditional garden. Oh, that's traditional to you? I I don't know. For Drowned, I picture something a little bit more like we were seeing in Lord Fresh's environment. Okay, dig it. I foresaw it outside, but that's just me. Mm. (laughs) A couple of fun facts, at least fun to me. Uh, One thing we noticed, first of all, sci-fi is awesome. The movies that they play before the magicians are always awesome. Mm -hmm. Things we'd want to watch. Yeah. Well, this week, speaking of things we'd want to watch, was Harry Potter... And the Goblet of Fire, which is our movie review for last month on Patreon. Yeah, rerunning Harry Potter is not a weird thing for any channel, but the timing on that... It's perfect. The Goblet of Fire specifically. And we had a lot of fun with that review. I hope our Clatchers like that. Remember, you can always join coffeeclatchcrew.com. Click on Patreon. And the first three are available as well in the catalog of stuff we've covered in the past. And we will be covering the rest. Christina digs deep on all of the creatures. It's pretty amazing. We also did both Fantastic Beasts, if you are into that genre. The other fun fact is yesterday was National Sibling Day, which I thought was another pretty apropos moment that night because the magician's sibling day, first time we see the sister. Not an accident, right? I don't know. I don't know (laughs) if they can plan that well. That pretty ahead crazy. Of time. So speaking of fantastic segue, let's jump right into our plot where we open up on this scene with the twins. Julia wakes in the forest with the monster standing over her and his sister laying on the altar. He says he has to momentarily kill her again before putting her into the new body. In a last desperate attempt, Julia prays to Persephone. I'm sorry, I just can't call her OLU. And she appears. She pauses his actions, but only temporarily. She says she can't fix it. 
as she urges Julia to run, saying she still has a chance to choose what to be. Yeah, what to be. You can be human or you can be a god. It's up to you. But that's it. She doesn't really explain what that means. It sounds like once this monster sibling inhabits her, that can no longer happen. Does this force the humanity out of her by having such a being possess her? What does that equate to? Or vice versa. If she gets stabbed by sorrow and sorrow, is all of the godliness... The godly essence just leave her? Yeah. Or, one more thing, was Persephone telling her what she needs to do once she's under? It's her decision. If she becomes human, the sister will have to leave that body. It didn't sound like that because it was so rushed. Mm. She, she was really like, you, you have to do this right now. And Julia just couldn't follow along the train quick enough. No, no one could. I couldn't. It was a little bit frustrating. We've been wanting to see Persephone come back for so long. And she comes in for all of two seconds is entirely flustered, can barely get this cautionary warning out to her before the godly essence comes floating into Julia. She's a god, by the way. Why didn't she just disappear when she saw That's, that coming? I was going to say that, yeah. And there's enough time for Julia to snap her fingers, now being the sister, and kill Persephone. So I guess I was wrong last week. I was thinking that the gods, when they said the gods were scared of him, this mistake... And they were so powerful. I thought they were just so much more powerful than the librarian gods rather than the old gods. Or they were powerful enough to scare them, but not like where they can just snap their fingers and kill them. Well, four times more powerful. Where you were thinking the librarians, I think the distinction comes in between what's a new and old god. And that really hasn't been explained to us. We were thinking newer gods were the ones, the magicians themselves we're introducing, not part of any known pantheon. So gods like Ember and Umber. Right. They're making it sound like newer gods are the Olympian gods that we know of. So we've talked about this before in reviewing our mythology all season long, the parallels. The newer gods would be the Olympians. Okay. And the old gods are? The Titans. Okay. So anybody from the Greek pantheon that we've had here would be a quote unquote new god making these siblings four times more powerful than any one of them. Now, we also went back to the discussion, still though, can a god kill a god? I guess whatever they are is such a mistake. Who knows what would happen between new gods and old gods, but certainly these siblings are able to do so. That's the other thing. Remember, we kept saying gods can't die. That's what it seemed like to us. We wondered though, once the brother... The Elliot monster started going on his craze. It did seem he was actually killing these gods. Well, yeah, but that was explained with the fact that they weren't gods. Mm. Once that part of that was removed. Yeah. Right. But now we got Persephone and I'm like, what? Yeah. And, and they don't even really seem to be afraid of the old gods either. That Elliot monster is going to tell us that in a little bit. I'm not afraid to confront them. It's just... How do you kill such a primordial force? Hmm. The way he phrased that, though, almost like their pure thought, sounded like even a step before the Titans, the really old primordial gods, hmm. those of the earth and the sky that gave birth to the Titans. So we could even be going back a step further. I'm not sure. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I hope not. <laughs> because it's one freaking episode, and I'd rather have more than one episode if we go there. 
That's kind of what I mean about the pacing. <laughs> so, okay, Persephone just stands there and doesn't disappear. She should have disappeared, but okay. Now, what I did like about this is right away the episode started. And I was like, holy smokes, Persephone's dead. Julia's possessed. Julia's possessed. And check out Elliot's new shirt <laughs> in the first scene. <laughs> and then we go to the Dean Fogg scene. Really strong opening so far. At break bills, Todd warns Dean Fogg there are librarians in his office that want to arrest him. He knows Katie and Zelda haven't returned from the poison room and they're running out of time. So thinking fast, he transforms a practical spell book into what translates to construction of worlds. No, he- I want you to try to say it. That's an Italian. I'm sorry, I don't speak. <laughs> Which is really passing strange given my background, but... Con- Construzione de mondi? I like that. So clever, though. Something that the library would look at. Immediate red flag. Somebody's reading about building worlds? That's hmm. got to go to the poison room. He tells Todd to take it to the library book drop before he's escorted out. They bring him to the library where he's ordered to change clothes. But using his tie clip, he causes the man to disappear and then changes the color of his suit to a less loud gray. So smooth. I loved it. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to be less loud as well because he's going to be sneaking around. Yeah, he's like, you're sticking out like a sore thumb, man. <laughs> Even though he's like six foot five or something. Yeah. He's very tall. <laughs> Let's not brush over Todd. I mean, we got to see Todd again. I love that character, first of all. And I actually love him in The Order oh, on yeah? Netflix. Uh, that character was really fun to well, watch. The, yeah, the actor is good. Yeah. And we have a Clatcher comment that we'll go over later in regards to Todd. I want to get your opinion. First, though, in the poison room, Katie coughs up the last of her insect protection. As they're wondering what to do, not to our surprise, Plover appears and says he can show them how to survive if they help him escape. Okay, so we knew. We've been saying since... He was thrown down there that he can survive there for sure. I had hypothesized that maybe he was the one that locked the door, but I guess not. But right away when I saw Katie throw up the bugs, I was like, there were 12 other vials there. Zelda should have grabbed a couple Why, just in case. Why did they only pick case. one? Yeah. I didn't even think about it till you said that. And I was like, oh yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I was surprised. I thought if we saw Plover, he'd be looking a little mangled. Yeah, he's got an age slowing spell on him. A, this isn't the normal course of aging. This is sped up times a million. It's incredibly poisonous in here. I thought maybe we would at least see some deterioration. Perhaps I was just looking for something to add to his story because I'm feeling a little done with Plover. And I didn't mind what he had to offer initially here. You're not a lover of Plover? (laughs) Well, certainly not. But as far as how he builds the backstory, it makes sense as in his interactions with Katie and Zelda, and as far as being able to tell them where and how the reservoir works, I don't think we needed him to go actually with them to Fillory, to the secret sea. By the time it got to that scene with Quentin, I was feeling very much the way Q was. What are you doing here just standing over my (laughs) shoulder, being a creeper like you are? Your storyline is done, go somewhere else. He just always seems to get whatever he's after. He he's can clever. scheme his way into it. Well, I'm thinking that maybe next season he'll... Well, I'm as I say that, I was going to say next season he'll have um, a part of the storyline that oh, would please, be awesome. Please but, don't. But we keep losing characters in these stories. So <laughs> I really had he's, enough. But also, if he's so clever, right? Now you're really contradicting yourself because he didn't realize until they said it 
that it was that spell protecting him. He really thought the moss was saving him. I thought that's just something he was playing Zelda and Katie for. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. He's a schemer. He's got to find a use for himself. Yeah, but no, that's not the case. He really thought he was helping them. Why would they write it like that? Well, I think he says it briefly. I think it holds some weight if you put yourself in his shoes. He found the only thing living there. His train of thought makes sense. But then he touches his head and he's like, oh... Oh, yeah, the thing I've been living with for years and years and years. I just can't buy. If he is that smart, you have to have it one way or another. And it's so easy to say, well, yeah, I know that's not it, but they're just going to leave me here if I serve no purpose. Make it be like, oh, yeah, I can keep you alive. Come eat Mm. my special moss. (laughs) I wonder. Well, they don't know that initially, of course. They come along, and as they're eating the moss, he shares the story. It was Alice who locked him here in the poison room. They search the history books, but they can't find anything about a way out. That's when they notice their skin starting to burn. They realize about the age suspension spell, but Zelda reassures Katie if they get back in time, they might not die. Outside, they would have a few days. In here, a few hours. Well, that's because the library has a cure. Meaning that they chose not to save Penny Penny Forty. Penny didn't have to die. That's wow to me. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things where it makes a lot of sense, but I just never thought about it. You know, I agree with you. I never thought about it either. But for some reason, it didn't have as much of a pow to me when it was delivered. I wasn't like, what? They, they pulled a little away from everything with the Katie storyline this episode that should have had a lot of emotional weight. Even what she's considering later on when she talks to Penny 23, it's so jumped over again because they were rushing. They had too much to cover. It didn't have the space to breathe so you could really feel. That's a gut punch. Yeah. I mean, this was her whole arc for a couple of seasons now. It is a gut punch. I don't know why I didn't feel it. Uh, you're right, though. I think just like you were saying in my head, I was like, of course they do. Yeah. Hmm. And of course they didn't save him. No. I guess because he has to work for the library forever. So even in the underworld, he has to work for them. So they felt like we're not losing anything. Not only were they not losing anything, but let's this just speeds the process along. Now you can come down here. I mean, we did name it Poison Room. It's, uh, it's kind of in the name. I think that's the big piece of it for Katie, just the cavalier attitude, the fact that Zelda even still isn't totally owning or feeling the depths that the library is willing to go. She is understandably outraged, but Zelda tries to argue that the institution isn't all bad. God, this sounds like me trying to justify it, right? She says if they remove Everett from power, there's a chance it can be reformed. No. (sighs) I just... You know, the problem is I see what she's seeing. I see why this is so difficult. Even up to this conversation with Everett, I know what he's about, and yet he's still kind of selling me. Yeah. The way he's describing it, I could picture myself being her and having this idealistic viewpoint and just wanting to believe it. Because the alternative is, however many years, and we don't even know, she's been serving the library a long time. You have been complicit. In a really awful institution that's been doing terrible things. Who wants to acknowledge that or own up to it? That's got to be a horrible thing. You know, this happens in real life with cults. Oftentimes, really smart people, really, really smart people, doctors, philosophers, I mean, on and on. They start in this cult before it's a cult cult. And everything seems right. It seems like this is for a good cause. 
I believe in all of this. And before they know it, they're manipulated slowly and slowly to thinking that everything they're doing is actually right, even though from us, from the outside, exactly. Yeah. And it has been said, it's been written that it only works with really smart people who join cults like this. The ones that don't think that deeply won't think themselves through to make it sound okay in their brain. Get caught in a web of their own creation. Exactly. Yeah. Well, if you look at this is kind of what we've been trying to say about Alice, you know, from the outside, we were so angry with her last season. But if you try to get into her internal space and everything she went through, she was drawn in by the same explanations. Magic can be dangerous. We're here to help people. We protect this. Yeah. She bought it until she saw the truth of it. And Zelda's going to hopefully start seeing the truth of it now. Oh, I don't know now. Well, let's, yeah, let's talk about this scene because talk about a persuasive leader it seems that zelda passes out and comes to somewhere else but everett explains he knocked her out so they could talk and he tries to justify what she read in his book he's put in centuries of work before she ever even existed he's old that is a long time almost godlike and the way he's seen it over all this time is that their efforts to protect knowledge could be futile An unkillable god with the power to destroy everything is on the loose. If they want to face that, they need power too. By becoming a god, he can get their secrets and bring them back to the library. She thinks to him, well, that's exactly what Bacchus and the others were trying to do, right? And why wouldn't he fall prey to the same hubris? Well, I thought I had you. To do what exactly? To take over the library once I'm gone. To see to the human concerns. And to fix my mistakes. With the benefit of all the knowledge and the power I would bring. And he's found a way. He redirected the magic water, but it triggered a protective spell he can't break. However, he's found someone who can. If she can get Q to open the reservoir, the library can still be hers to lead. This is the same thing they did with the fountain all of last season, right? With Alice. They had to find their pawn who mm-hmm. could get in on the inside, yes. manipulate her mind, and she redirected the fountain's powers toward the library. So he's basically trying to do the same thing, but on a larger level that taps into the reservoir with Q. <laughs> and he's doing this so well. I thought I had you. Very manipulative. Mm. You'll be my moral compass. You'll make it all better. <laughs> and we have to remember that he's been her mentor for so long that it carries even more weight. Mm-hmm. Do you think the slap... Snapped her out of it, or do you think this is her new goal? As she already had doubts because she questioned him about the former librarians. Isn't this just repeating the pattern? Isn't that what they thought and look what happened? But she does bring up later about Q having to go. Only you are the one. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I so want I her. Man, the same way I wanted Alice to have this turnaround and she really has this season, I want the same thing for Zelda because I do believe that at heart she's not a bad person. The same way we knew Alice wasn't a bad person. You just don't want to see them fall into that trap. Mm -hmm. While this is going on and they're talking, a librarian finds the banned book that Fogg had Todd put down the book drop. They're readying to bring it to the poison room but he creates a diversion and takes the potion they were removing. He gets to Zelda in time, Katie knocks out Everett, and they're planning to leave without Plover when he insists Martin knew how to get to the reservoir and he can share the secret if they take him. So they do. (laughs) And on their way out, more librarians come to get them. 
Fogg orders the others to go to the earth fountain while he heads them off, sacrificing himself. He doesn't die, <laughs> just to be taken back into a cell. Okay, just one more time, how badass was Fogg? Yeah, kicking everyone's ass and then just eventually overwhelmed by too many librarians. Isn't this what you've wanted from him for yes. a while, though? Where Damn it. And Fogg just step Come up on, Fogg. and take some action, wear your magic suit, throw that power around. It was awesome to watch. He earned his second G. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the next storyline, which is Josh is a fish. The crew is trying to formulate a plan to save Julia, but they know an incorporate bond of this magnitude will take a lot of magic. Alice first tries to enlist Sheila's help, but she turns her down, saying she won't mess up a good thing with the library. Luckily, they receive a bunny message from Fenn. Found magic. Need help. Where? Who? <laughs> oh, sorry, it's Fenn. <laughs> <laughs> so arriving at Whitespire, Penny and Q are taken to the room Fenn discovered where the flowers are blooming and dying. And outside they find this huge underground cavern that she discovered containing the ocean of magic. Didn't you love that pull away as they walk out? Mm -hmm. Beautifully done. As they near it, though, Fen yells at them not to touch the water. It's protected by a curse. I love Fen's cadence. The way she speaks, even when she's in dire turmoil, she has this playful way about her. This innocence. I love it. And you're wondering why she's not really looking at them, but you don't know the whole oh, story right. yes, yet. That's right. It's then she shows them the fishbowl she's been holding and says they were about to go tell the crew what they found when Josh touched the water and was transformed into a Florian dying fish. They need eye contact almost constantly, as we mentioned. When she briefly looks away from him, his color turns white and then back to orange when she returns her gaze. So we see how fast that can happen, how serious this is. And even if she does maintain this 24-7, he still only has a couple of days. So it's played for laughs, but it is kind of a serious situation. For sure. And the reason it's a fish makes sense later on when we find out who made this spell and when. Yes. All of it's going to make sense. First, though, they go back to the apartment to tell Margot. Fenn says that Josh has taken a turn for the worse and pleads with her to help. When Margot grudgingly agrees to look at him, he perks right back up and Fenn tells her, he's bonded to you. He thinks you're his mother. Oh, boy. Margot casually admits to Alice that her and Josh bang sometimes, but Alice recognizes that it sounds more like love. She counsels Margot, you can still care about someone without making you less you. So I like that Alice is having her moments yeah. separately with the other characters in order to build that bridge back to create the forgiveness that she's been looking for from the group. Yeah, and I like the way the magicians did this the whole season. I thought that was one of the more natural things they were able to implement. It feels natural that she's with them now. Really elegantly handled. I mean, slow stepped it all the way through that yeah. we weren't going. Alice is part of the group again. What? What's happening? I mean, I know a lot of people weren't crazy about the scene coming up between her and Quentin, mainly because they've just been excited to see Quentin wind up with Elliot. But I think they had to go here. I think it only makes sense. And yeah. I don't know, nor do I really believe that it's going to last between the two of them. But you have to remember that the last time Quentin saw Elliot, before he was possessed, that is, he was turned down. 
Yeah. It's been a long time now. He's come to terms with the fact that he's not going to be with Elliot. He put himself on the line, and that's not happening. He still loves him. He can still be friends with him. He can still fight to save him. But Quentin's also trying to figure himself out, and he's got a lot of unresolved history with Alice that they really managed to finally start to get to the bottom of and overcome here. So I actually liked the way that unfolded. But back to the fish story. Finding a note on the fridge from Katie about Gordy, the hedge doctor, Margo decides to take Josh there for help. At the office, Gordy quickly realizes that this situation is a lot more complex. For instance, they're both werewolves and Margo has a fairy eye. Very fun delivery. (laughs) And how about the fact that Gordy sounds like a fish name? (laughs) Oh, but he says that without knowing how the spell was cast, there isn't much he can do to help. However, he sees her eye isn't even attached to her head and advises, well, she could pop it out and point it at Josh when she needs to, you know, attend to other matters. Um, okay. You didn't like this? The the fairy eye was like a very serious, (laughs) really important gift, we thought, and played to great effect in her journey in the desert where she's able to see something that's really impactful that nobody else can see. Ever since then, it feels like it's become kind of a joke. Oh, last episode too? It's just like, I don't know, she can see Pervy Hyman Cooper running around upstairs and now she's got to keep her eyeball on a fish quite literally popping out of her head. I I don't love where we've gone with it. I didn't mind it, but I think what you're feeling is the fact that these last two episodes feels very serious. And this kind of playfulness, you weren't open to at this point. You feel... It's like they're back to treating Margot and Josh as the comic relief characters. They've downshifted in seriousness for this episode because everything else is so intense and emotionally resonant. Well, let's make it a laugh with Margot and Josh. But that's not where we were at with them. You know, Margot lost her high kingship and was banned forever from Fillory. She fought these people in the desert, found herself, got these axes, gave up everything so she could come back to save Elliot. And this is where we see her this episode? I just, I can't reconcile it. However... This next scene that I was talking about that I know wasn't a big hit for everyone, Quentin and Alice alone, I I really liked the acting from both of these characters and how it resonated for me. Quentin opens up by telling Alice he didn't think he could ever trust her again, but now he finds himself wanting to. When they first met, he was clinging to idealistic notions of what the world and people should be. But he's realized if he throws away all the childish bullshit, he can forgive people for not living up to unrealistic expectations, including himself. And I just, I thought that was so real. Everything that Quentin faces, it might not be outwardly the most epic of journeys, but it's sincere and it's something most people deal with throughout their lives. This is some of the hardest emotional shit we have to face in life. Especially when you get to that certain age, yeah, you're becoming an adult and you realize these big dreams and expectations, everything you thought life was <laughs> going to be, it's not. And other people that you wanted to be a certain way, that you envisioned relationships with, idealistically, without flaws, well, that's not life either. I think he's come to terms with the fact that, yes, Alice did a lot of wrong, but that's not even the biggest part of why he was upset with her. 
It's the fact that she wasn't living up to that image. She had flaws. She was a real person. She made mistakes. And he just couldn't accept that the way he can't accept it in himself. This was the weakness of Q since episode one. This is when he saw him, saw in himself every time he wanted to be with Julia and couldn't. Mm-hmm. It was his fault. It's his flaws. All the mistakes. Look at how he hurt her because yeah. of it. And she hadn't done all the things that Alice has done. And it's really good groundwork for the phase two, the higher level shit he's going to have to Absolutely. face later in this episode, which, by the way, all of this is just the central arc of Quentin from the novels. So I really like that they've kept that as a through line that's important to him. Well, next, Katie returns with Plover, who explains that Martin called the magic waters the reservoir. It was Plover himself who renamed it the Secret Sea because it sounded better. In fact, he admits to inventing most of the book's plots from whole cloth because, well, he couldn't publish the true stories the children told, such as centaurs viewing necrophilia as a way to honor the dead. (laughs) In fact, the more he confesses of the ordinary, less magical truth, the more depressed Quentin appears. It's like he's watching everything that was ever important to him just crumble away in front of his eyes what about that awkward moment when he signs the book and he's like and now it's worth more oh, and the look on Quentin's an face <laughs> what an ass oh and plover says that in real life the secret sea was built by the 13th king to consolidate power for himself. for himself martin wanted to make sure that no one ever tried to do the same thing again so he drained the secret sea using the last few drops to set a trap for anyone who might one day try to refill it a, a curse. Right, so now one of our friends is a fish. <laughs> well, he was 13 at the time. You have to forgive his brother adolescent sense of humor. You know how to fix it? Mm. There's a gardener's outside the reservoir. The drowned garden, Martin called it. Never did know why. It reacts to your emotions. You feel happy, a flower blooms. You feel sad, another one. So one of the plants is the antidote indeed to make it bloom you, you have, have to, to truly love Fillory. i thought this is directly from the books right not really oh they've put a twist on it but in a way that feels so true absolutely i loved it to what would have had to happen the whole scene with quentin coming up where he has to face that is really just a spin on a thing that was happening for three books with Quentin. Okay. The multiple layers just in that saying alone, it reminded me that the beast was a kid who loved Fillory. Now I knew it, but I, whenever I think of the beast, I think of the beast as the beast. Mm. This reminded me, he was a kid who loved Fillory, who saved Fillory from the 13th King, got rid of the water was and so smart that he said the only way to ever access that much power again is somebody who's going to do the right thing with it. Because to pass this test, you literally have to love and want the best for Fillory. That's so beautiful, isn't it? If only we could make power like that in real life. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only way you can get that much is if we can ensure you're going to do the right thing with it. Going back to what you said a fish that dies real quick. Yeah, so, and yeah. How, how horribly tragic that it just reinforces the awfulness. Plover is not just a creep. How intense and deeply he ruined this kid's life. Yeah. 
that you could only gain access to Fillory if you still had that level of innocence and purity. Mm. And after what he had gone through at the hands of Plover, Fillory stopped letting him in. His brothers and sisters could get here, but he no longer could. Can you imagine? Because he didn't have that through no fault of his own. And now he's stuck on Earth, even more of a victim to him because of those rules. It just pisses me off when you say that. And then I think of Plover saying, that's the old me. I'm a new person. I'm a, well, it's not that bad. This, and then this was he's so long ago. the one able to stand there over Quentin's shoulder and tell him you have to remember how much you love. That's it just I was like, man, you got to get him out of here. Yeah, this is no good. <laughs> it's no wonder Quentin can't muster mm-hmm. up those feelings. Like I said, you could just see it in his face right now. I know what we need to do. <laughs> we give Plover to Tick. He loves to make people suffer, right? So we'll just let him let him oh, suffer. Man, that that might be a good resolution. I think they should have just left him in the poison room forever, eating his moss. Yeah. You know? Or give him the penny 40. Let him do what he wishes to him. Yeah, that could be good too. Oh my God, is that the guy? No, you got to keep the, okay. you gotta keep saying it. It can't just be anyone. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to come back to it. It's an elevator full of all the people, I'm guessing. <laughs> In this moment... All eyes obviously turn to Quentin. If anyone is going to stand in front of this flower and truly love Fillory, it's got to be him. But he protests, saying he doesn't feel the same way he did when he was 12. This is where you mentioned Zelda insists he's the only one that has a chance. Thus, he reluctantly agrees. And as they all prepare to leave, Penny goes to have a conversation with Katie. This is the one we were speaking of that was kind of really quickly brushed over. But he's trying to convince her to go with Zelda as she leaves to get the cure, until he realizes she doesn't really want one. After all, if she died, she could spend forever with Penny Forty. Again, it didn't have as much weight for me. Maybe I don't believe it. It's, this is, I agree, the area where it should have. And I felt them wanting me to feel it. I know she is horribly conflicted between these two ideas. She's just starting to figure out who she is and what her purpose should be trying to become this version of her that she saw a bit of in her alter ego, Sam. And yet she desperately misses Penny Forty all the time. They didn't get that time together they were supposed to. I really thought that poison room scene might end with her dying, but in fact it still can. If she doesn't go get that cure from Zelda, she could choose that. What a darkly poetic thing if she winds up dying the same way he did, knowing there was a cure out there. There was a cure for him too, but... So she's the one in the elevator? They're not going to get... I had kind of thought that from well, last what's episode. what's her secret? Uh, last episode I thought so because the secret was what they read in the book about Everett. About Everett. But now what would be her secret? Well, she hasn't died yet. Something so could something still happen. Could... Hmm. Okay. I, I don't think so. She's been having some pretty intense interactions with Zelda, finding things out before anybody else does. Yeah. Things that are pretty shocking like when they were alone in the poison room and she read that about Everett maybe something else could happen between the two of them I don't know but let's go back over to the reservoir garden where Plover locates the right plant and tells Q to think pure happy thoughts about Fillory he starts rattling off things he used to love from the books the fizzy river the upside down desert but he just can't bring the emotions you guys have air with opium that's clever (laughs) He tells Alice 
He loved Fillory back when he didn't know any better. She tries to give him this pep talk, telling him that being an adult doesn't mean you have to throw away what you used to love. It's just seeing the world through new eyes. In fact, she's always loved that he believed in the magic. And as a final boost, she leaves him with the fact that the cozy horse is real. She saw it when she was a niffin. I thought it was perfect that she's the one to push him in the right direction. That moment was so lovingly beautiful, so simple. She knew exactly what he needed to hear. And it was the truth. Everything he thought was real about this place, every last damn thing is either fiction or a lie or has a darker side. But she had that little nugget to offer him. By the way, though, that cozy horse, it does exist. In fact, you could build a house on it. And that does give him that little bit of something he needed. Because now alone, he tells the plant, you know the worst part about getting exactly what you want? When it isn't good enough. If this can't make me happy, then what would? Fillory was was supposed supposed to mean mean something. something. I was supposed to mean something here. But it's all, it's just, it's random. It's so random that the only way to save my friends is to yell at a fucking plant. Honestly, fuck Fillory for being so disappointing. You know what, maybe I was better off just believing that it was fiction. The idea of Fillory is what saved my life. This promise that people like me can somehow find an escape, there's got to be power in that. Shouldn't loving the idea of Fillory be enough? In the Arjun interview, he spoke about how this show is for people who always felt like they were on the outside. Wasn't, Seeds, wasn't man, quite he's accepted. really good at it. He's really good at that, <laughs> isn't he? But it's true. I mean, that, like I said, is the thesis of Quentin from the books. It's even more miserable and depressing because every time things do get a little better and real, he gets accepted into break bills. He can actually mm-hmm. do magic, but that's not enough. He gets in this relationship with this wonderful, amazing magician, Alice, but that's not enough. He finds Fillory, fucking Fillory, man, and actually (laughs) becomes High King and gets bored. He's bored of his status there because, like we've discussed before, he's looking for those external answers, as Arjun put it. He's never put himself right on the inside, so nothing is ever going to be enough. Nothing's going to do it for him until he becomes okay with himself. And that's really what he's saying here, right? I wanted Fillory to make it okay. I wanted to come here and have that make me be important. But he's realizing that he really just has to accept who he is and be happy with that. And a big part of Quentin's identity was this idea of Fillory, something that got him through the hard times. And people that are readers imaginative people, creative minds will understand that idea of this escape. I mean, we all watch this show for that very reason, right? Our magicians are all getting monumental breakthroughs mentally. Mm. Margot just had this. Alice is having it this season. Even Dean Fogg. Even Dean Fogg, yeah. Not Katie, not so much. She's uh, She's the one in trouble. she's, She's dipping her toes in, pulling them back out, you know. She's having that Katie struggle. That she has for a long time. Well, at the last line that Quentin says so desperately, I love that, by the way, the way he's choking up and half crying. It's so real. He stares at the plant and it finally blooms. 
But now a whole bunch of things happen at once <laughs> in quick succession. There's not even a way to recap it, just to say they receive the message from Sheila, monsters in the library, and the crew readies themselves for the fight. Q picks the plant and sends it back with Penny. He brings it to Margot, but she sadly says she can't leave until Josh is cured. <clears throat> so he takes the axes and reassures her they will bring Elliot back. Quentin and Alice go back to the sea where Q drinks the water and his eyes glow with that... That was awesome. ...big power. If I was there, I'd be drinking with a straw. I'd be like, I'm just going to keep drinking. I'll be there. I'll be back. Give me a half hour. Bathing. I'm going to overdose swimming. on this. <laughs> I'm guessing it fades away, right? Eventually? Well, if it works, we're assuming the same way it did with the beast, who is drinking from the fountain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you got to keep doing that's it. That's right. But that's why we don't understand how... Everett was planning on essentially becoming a god because it's not lasting. This is still a big mystery. Some kind of spell. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, maybe he was going to use that power to kill the monster and use the binder. To take their essence yeah. of the times four. Well, godly. not there. I don't think. Does he even know about the sister? I don't think he knows. He only spoke about the monster at that point. Oh, I think. Yeah, I think they all do. Oh, they know. That there were two? That she's back? Oh, that she's back. I don't think... I don't know. Because when he was talking to Zelda, he didn't bring her up. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I guess, really, it's our crew and Zelda. She would be the only one. Yeah. With that being said, let's talk our last scene about the twins. Walking and observing, the sister says a lot has changed since she's been gone. The brother asks her if he has a name, to which she wonders, well, why would you need one? Starbucks, mostly. <laughs> I love Elliotisms. I love it. Oh, man. Not only is he amazing, but I could totally relate. <laughs> yes, you could. I loved that. She says she had felt sorry for him being alone, but now she realizes he was with humans and actually he cares about them. All she thought about was revenge. That's Oof. foreshadow for sure. Yeah. But why isn't she telling him his name? Tell him his name. That's a human concept to even oh, want or need a name. I get it. That's okay. what she's saying. Man, you've gone human. You've gone Prometheus on us, buddy. He's almost trying to prove himself. He's saying he's happy to report that he killed all the gods who were responsible for her. But she's concerned with bigger issues, namely their makers. The parents who created them, called them mistakes, and abandoned them. I disagree with you. I thought he was bringing that up as one... A way to say, hey, big sis, I just killed a whole bunch of people for you. For you. I'm not in love with the humans. But also, we don't we don't need to kill anymore, no? Can't we just hang? Yeah, but I don't think it's because he has any qualms with killing people. He's thirsty for her attention. Okay. He's like, why are you <clears throat> concerned about other things? I just want to... I did all I this just to did bring this for you, you back, okay. and you're just not even hanging out with me for hmm. half a second. Also kind of a human concept, though. He'd get bored real quick, though, right? He, he wants that friend to play with so it's interesting that he's supposed to be whole with her around and he yeah. is more so than he was before For sure. but he still is kind of that more emotional needy, needy yes. side of the equation more human i guess when she talks about their parents he says he's not scared of the old gods but he wonders how you kill intangible thought creatures she Where says stab <laughs> again doesn't sound like titans um she says they're more vulnerable than you would think if you can get to their realm also more of an indicator because these really ancient primordial gods yeah 
were kind of like part of what they embodied. So Gia, the earth mother, was in the earth. Mm -hmm. How would you get to something like that? Right. So the realm would be it? She was like all of the earth for the most part. What do you even do with that? If they go to the realm, do you think they'll all be just like on the couch chilling, not paying attention? I think it's going to be scary. I'm thinking of, do you remember in Percy Jackson where they had to go into the underworld? Yeah. And Tartarus, the whole thing was him. He's saying he's walking along the ground and suddenly it felt like skin. Oh. And that's in the book. They're by a part that's pulsing and it felt like a heartbeat. He's realizing he's he's actually existing within inside of Tartarus right now. That's all I could think about when she was talking about that. Okay. How would you kill something like that? Dig it. But the sister says they did have a key at one point to the realm, a scroll. She found it a very long time ago in this world. The order took it from them. They didn't even know what they had. This is a little strange because it's just odd that that exists in the first place. But then why would it be on the human world and the library has it, but they don't know what they have? It's on the human world because the twins already stole it. When those librarians did their thing with the binder. It was left here? They had it on them, on their person. And they didn't know it was that important? I don't know, man. The library? <laughs> uh, anyway, though. I mean, they, they put it in the poison room. Yeah, they knew it was Yeah. at that level, I suppose. Um, and the twins know they have to go to the library to get it back. So they travel there. They begin tossing aside, killing librarians, anyone that's in their way, to get to the poison room. Awesome shots. Cyrus dies. His death was amazing. The fire and the... Especially scary when you're seeing it from Sheila's point of view, who's hiding in the mm -hmm. corner and trying not to be seen. I just started working here. What the hell? <laughs> and more so, they get the scroll. She's able to unlock the code. And now on their way back, they make their way to the cell where Dean Fogg is. And I was just terrified, thinking... There's no way this isn't the end of him. And maybe that's why we just saw him acting so badass because he's about to go out. Is he on the elevator? No, elevator? no, because he gets out of I'm this moment. Kidding. It's really all seemingly hinging upon how he answers this question. How did he wind up here? He replies that he did everything he could to make a difference. And you really can't tell. It's unclear where she's going to go with that, if she's going to kill him or not. But before she can respond, they are interrupted by Quentin and Alice, who have arrived armed. Epic scene. Perfect way to end the episode. Big cliffhanger. Mm. But I kept thinking, where's Penny? Mm -hmm. He was the one that we saw with the daggers. Sorrow and sorrow. I really not only just didn't mind, but loved the scene with him at the reservoir because that's the type of hero that Quentin is and yes. was supposed to be. It's not really the hero the way you picture it who's running into battle. It's this average guy who has to confront his own inadequacies and insecurities and really the only thing that makes him stronger, different, more special, quote unquote, than anyone else is how fucking much he loves Fillory, period. I kind of think this is the same way every other cliffhanger has been. It's not going to be what you expect. Right. It's not going to be blazing hand-on-hand -hand combat throwing ice axes. And I think, obviously, him and Alice have to be here because they're the ones that drank from the reservoir. They're the ones that True. have the power right True. now. Nobody else was there. All I could say is don't break the seal. Because I'm assuming if you pee it out, you don't have the power. <laughs> no, you're right. When you think of it that way, when you bring it that way, it should be them 
doing it together, which is which is very um, romantic, right? I just really wanted Margot to be the one. And, you know, they, they are the ones that more than anything have been concerned with this problem at hand all season. But in addition to the person who's been loving Fillory and running Fillory, yes, Margot. If she was there with them, I think I'd feel okay about it. And I'm hoping that she does come in quickly resolve that issue and come in next episode. And that it's it, not just the two of them. Yeah, and that answers where's Penny. He's back over there getting her. Getting her, yeah. I'm also hoping that within this fighting, Monster Elliot decides to side with our crew. Yes, that we predicted that, right? Yeah, I just don't know if there's enough time. Like I said before, there isn't like four episodes of him going through those trials in his brain. But if you look at these arcs and the way they they do kind of repeat certain things. We've talked about that plot lines in a sense with the magician story. If this is going to follow loosely an idea we've covered before with Ember and Number, the brothers wound up being at odds with each other the last episode of that season. Yeah. And this is how our magicians got out of that situation. I mean, yeah, Quentin had to kill Ember, but... Well, there you go. Quentin was the one to kill him. Um, it feels like a similar showdown is coming. Okay. So I like it. The siblings start fighting long enough to give us a passing chance at stabbing one with an ice axe and, you know. Dean Fogg still could die during this fight. Maybe he tries to help. I hope he doesn't. I don't want him to. I think he's he's going to come help. I think most of them are going to have to come help Yes. as this develops. For sure. Josh is brought back to life. Penny travels the two of them over there. Everett's going to come. I'm really, I have no idea how that's going to go. I'm yeah. anxious to see when the how moment comes, Zelda and Everett. Without further ado, let's get to our rating. Each episode, we rate on a scale of 1 to 10 rations. Just like magic rations, more is better, less is worse. Jason, what do you give episode 12? Well, as you can tell, I really enjoyed this episode. I feel like I say that all the time, which is a good thing. <laughs> so much happened. I'm a little upset about the Margot thing, but we were hoping for more Quentin. We got more Quentin. I've been hoping and dreaming and praying to the Egyptian, Greek, <laughs> Roman gods. All the gods. <laughs> Florian gods. That Dean Fogg would get out of his office and help his crew. And he finally did. So for this episode, I'm going nine rations. You know, every time I say nine rations or whatever rations, I feel like we're talking about whips, like whippings. Oh, dear. <laughs> for his offense, he gets nine lashings. <laughs> but it's rations. Well, I'm going to have to agree with you and give this episode a solid nine. Still, for the season, my highest was a 9.2 for Escape from the Happy Place. But we started off with a 9, and I do feel like we're coming back around to where we were, Episodes 1 and 2, starting to tie together the plot points there, some extraneous things that clearly I've been a little frustrated with. But overall, I'm liking this direction, and if I just took it in a bottle for Episode 12, I did really enjoy it. But if you took it in a bottle, you'd be trapped in that bottle. <laughs> My season rating might be a little different. We'll talk about that when we get there next week. First, though, let's head over to our MVM. Into the digital water cooler we go. You guys know by now, if you haven't followed us yet, what are you waiting for? At CKC Podcast via Twitter, we ask every week after the episode, who is your MVM? And we will be continuing that tradition with Game of Thrones. Except it'll be MVB, Most Valuable Bannerman. Our options were Dean Fogg with 1G, Quentin, Alice, and Christopher Plover. 
Now, Christina and I had a little bit of a discussion because I ahead, wanted to defend your plover choice. Well, I wanted to put plover in. Not that I forgive him or what he's done in the past is okay. Not at all. But I thought that he was pivotal this week in moving the story forward, letting the clatcher, letting the crew know vital information to get them to the flower and to prevent them from becoming betta fish. I am going to agree with you that first I wanted Zelda up there. And the more you spoke about this choice, we always say that MVM doesn't necessarily need to be a good guy. Sometimes the most influential character is in fact a bad guy. Speaking of Game of Thrones, I remember giving it to the Night King once. My only reluctance to do that was the feeling I was left with in that last scene that I described before where he's impinging a little bit upon Quentin's growth. But I definitely hear you with the moving of the narrative. And I guess I was not too off because we didn't get 0%. We got 4%. Somebody voted for him. I am surprised, though, that our third place with only 6% was Alice. I really thought she was moving the needle here and gaining back popularity, but maybe people didn't like the getting back together with Quentin thing. I've heard some bad feedback on that. Yeah, people are really mad at that. They want want Elliot. Yeah, you know, my issue is that, A, I don't see why there couldn't be both at some point in the storyline. As I said before, we haven't really finished and worked through this Alice thing. Maybe Elliot is more endgame once Quentin has a chance to work on himself, to get to that place with himself. He's really not there yet. And I have a feeling that when Elliot's not possessed, he's going to have a little work to do as well. And we also know Elliot doesn't mind sharing. That's also true. And just to reiterate, I think that we needed to have some closure on that relationship. And I do appreciate the arc that they've been building for Alice this season. And also just to put a pin in it, Alice did help Quentin a lot emotionally. The pep talks, she was there for him. But in the end, Quentin had to do the actual work. Yeah, I like that. She is always the one with more magic and power, which has served us very well all season long. But there is also an importance to Quentin that maybe he's coming to learn. He never fully realizes that what is his point in this story. And it's not to be perfect. And it's not necessarily to be that iconic hero, but this is very heroic. This is what Quentin can do. He can love Fillory. Speaking of, coming in second place, a very tight second, in fact, with 44% is Q himself. I really enjoyed watching Twitter these last couple of days as our clatchers were saying, come on, guys, we've got to vote. It's neck and neck. Dean Fogg and Quentin. I love that. It's not just about what we're saying. It's our clatchers. Everyone speaking together and having their opinions. So he got second place, a close second place, for many reasons. The obvious... He's the one who truly, truly loves Fillory. Here's my problem with this, and I thought it as soon as it happens. Isn't this just typical of the patterns of our crew to rush headlong into something? This is the most important thing. We got to do this, save the day without realizing the potential ramifications down the line. Every time they do something like this, and usually it's Quentin at the helm of it, doesn't work out so well. Every series finale seems like it ends in a... I killed Ember, what the hell are we going to do now type of moment. So unleashing this magical ocean that has had some pretty serious potential in the past might get him some power right now, but I have a feeling it's going to wind up being a bad decision in the long run. Well, once they leave to take care of the monster and his sister, Everett's going to stroll on in 
and have a, a few sips himself. You just know it. And not that they really ever have much of a choice. Maybe we need to have some powwows before we move into action phase. One thing that's totally underutilized, and I've said this from day one, is Fillory's army. Bunch of pansies. Uh, before I left, I would have said, Fen, have all of your army guarding this door. No one can get through. It is not open bar tonight. Yeah, is it just being like left that you can just walk in, stroll up to the secret sea? Not such a big secret anymore. So number one with 46% is Dean Fogg. Eking it out. I just, think Just barely getting there. But in an episode where Quentin did a hell of a lot, that's a pretty huge accomplishment. Well, let's be honest. I think everyone is on board with the way I've been feeling. We want to see some Dean Fogg ass kicking. And let's take it a step further. It wouldn't have mattered if Q could get rid of the hex if Dean Fogg hadn't done what he did in the beginning of the episode. We would have a dead Zelda and a dead Katie. I agree with you. What's funny, though, earlier on in the season, we had the quote unquote Dean Fogg episode, episode two, where you and I both gave it to him as MVM, but he was not on the polls. Quentin was. This time around, the polls are giving it to Dean Fogg, but I'm going to have to give it to Quentin. We're going to go going Q? We're going to go a little reverse. I realized I also have not given it to him once this whole season yet, nor have you. So you believe what Quentin did? What he did, nobody else could have done. That's the thing about it. This is his main purpose, the thing he's meant to do in this storyline. It was the same in the books, and I'm so happy that they brought it back around here. I hope that regardless of what's to come, it gives Q some peace and understanding about himself. Well, what Dean Fogg did couldn't have been done with so much style. So I'm going Dean Fogg for the many reasons I've given already. Question, and I should remember this, but it's all combining in my head now. The episode where Quentin played the card game, is that the same episode you were just speaking of? No, I was speaking of episode two. I believe the card game took place in a timeline in place. We were all paired up there. Me and the poll gave it to Alice and Sheila, and you gave it to Penny and Marina. Okay. Quentin yeah. literally hasn't ranked on anything since early this season. And we have discussed, you know, we've moved away from sort of him as the central character, so it makes sense, but this also is his time to, to shine a little bit. Let's see what our Clatchers had to say. Judging by the sheer volume, we are not going to be able to read all of these, which is incredible in and of itself. Again, I want to reiterate, Patreon, Twitter, email, if we don't get to all of it on air, this does not mean we are not reading the comments. This is amazing, and we really appreciate all your thoughts on these shows we're covering. And Chris, while you're saying that, as far as Patreon is concerned, and we try to let our Clatchers know this, but I think you, you have to constantly remind them, Check your junk mail. Oh, yes. Because we do, yeah, we do respond. And I think sometimes you don't see our response and you think we're ignoring you. I know for a fact that's happening because we had a new member join up recently and won't mention any names, but it turns out not only did they not get our responses, but they didn't get that initial email that we send out to everybody thanking you really from the bottom of our hearts for joining Patreon. If you're not at a tier where you're hearing the announcements in the bonus, that's the only way that you would know that happens, went right to their junk mail and they never saw it. So and they thought we just weren't replying. They were pretty upset with us. So if you're out there still listening to us, we apologize. We were responding and we do our best. It's, it's hard. Even sometimes my notifications, and I am a Patreon host, mm -hmm. 
Sometimes they'll come to me and sometimes I will find random in-between messages in junk yeah. mail. How that happens, I have no idea. It's scary. <laughs> this comment, I just have to read. Oh my goodness, fucking Umber's balls this episode. <laughs> nice. So Amir really did enjoy this episode, as have we. He says, in all seriousness, though, Quentin's speech to the flower was so powerful and an amazing scene. I was on the edge and falling off of my seat the whole time. Plus, we got to see a lot of magic. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. We mentioned that when it first came back and Alice was showing Sheila the magic that we hadn't seen a lot of the time. Margot's really amazing epic battle in the musical scene. But it was a lot of characters and a lot of time here. I feel like we've really been rationed on our ability to see magic it's so fun when it's on screen sherry ava says cold hard truth about the order of the library from katie you think if you're a cog in a fascist machine that you're not responsible for the people it kills the parallels to the reality we are living in are clear oh i like that tremendously as always with the magicians right they are not afraid to tackle the hard topics hey it's not me it's the other people in my crew so i'm not the bad guy we talked about that before too how difficult that can be and sherry we see all the tweets you're given we see the retweets and you shouting out at the top of white spire castle thank you so much we love you too yeah i love what she said about quentin how he struggled with his faith failure and ideals in this episode he bared his soul in a very believable performance and overcame disappointment and rigid judgment in order to open the door to love again and be a hero. He might not see it that way, but yes, absolutely. Rashonda agrees with you, Jason, saying it's hard to choose between Dean Fogg and Quentin, but this will probably be the last heroic thing that Dean does, so I have to give it to Fogg. I honestly think this is the only show on TV where a character can answer yes to, did you fuck this fish? (laughs) So true. This fish slash werewolf. Yeah, slash amazing cook. Oh, look, Jen said it too. Go, go gadget suit. I wasn't the only one thinking it. Yes. I I believe I'm dating myself here. I heard other podcasts talking about the Bond suit, and I was like, oh, yeah, maybe that was more (laughs) timely than the gadget suit. I remember go, go gadget. Come on. Yep. Brittany says, I'm worried the library ambush is too rushed. The Julia monster is literally bulletproof. Will the axes be able to penetrate and expel this god at all? I feel like the Elliot monster will step in and save his friends, only to get Elliot's body cut down by the sister. Wow. And man, we've been talking about <laughs> yeah. thinking that he might step in, but I never followed that through to what would the repercussions be if he did, and she took out the Elliot body. Would that take out Elliot? Fucked for Elliot yeah. is what it is. So Elliot would be in the elevator. Yes, he would. And maybe that's why we're not getting Quentin and Elliot. Brittany, I love you and oh, hate you at man, the same time. It does make a really lot of sense. Anon P says, I feel kind of awesome for calling the plover being kept alive by the beast spell thing. I knew obsessively rewatching this series would come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Kinney says, I really like the nods to the books we keep getting, but I struggle so much because nearly every book element that's in the show captures only a fraction of its beauty. Well, Mm. as with any adaptation, right, it's so hard. And I don't know, just describing why it's difficult for the magicians is hard to explain. It's written in such a way that I've never seen another series done before. If you haven't read it, now is a good time. We're going to come up on our break between seasons again. And I think I'm not going to read it until the series is over because I I really believe the dichotomy between a book reader and a non-book reader really helps with the podcast, but I am going to read it once the series ends 20 years from now. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that decision 
we'll talk about that when it comes to Game of Thrones. Also, Dan, you got to remember words are cheap and imagination is free. So when it comes to movies, unless you're Game of Thrones and TV shows, it's impossible to encompass everything that the words tell you. Yeah, unless you get 15 million an episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Sarah's joining my team. I was excited when Quelliot became a thing. But damn it, I think Alice is about to win me over. Yes. Team Alice, another one. Had to vote Dean Fogg, though, for being most badass magician. And Ballard agrees with those thoughts. Elliot Todd said, question, what would the monster order at Starbucks? And what funny name would he use? If he listens to CKC, it would have to be a double shot espresso. Boom. Love it. (laughs) Going back to what Ballard said, Nicole responded with, about damn time that man helped, right? I love how <laughs> yeah. all of our clatchers are right on Think board like with like we do. And another one. Abby says, I'm so torn between Fogg and Alice. They were both amazing. Dean Fogg in that suit. So glad we got to see it come back into play. But I think in the end, it has to be Alice. She spurned every other storyline on such a great episode. Tevin says, Q's speech gave me chills, but Fogg showing off his master magician skills made me happy. Oh yeah, Hillary says I wish I could change my vote. The majority of the Plover plot is so unnecessary and his attempts at getting sympathy make me sick. Hmm. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It is kind of the point of him though. I do get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Elliot Todd agrees saying can't see why the show kept dragging back Plover. The little information he had, it seems Everett knows it too. He could let Q know. It's also weird to hear Plover saying the society puts him in a box with no room to change only sees what he did, not who he really is. The thing is, yes, Everett could have told him, but then he would have blown up his whole spot. If Zelda told them, it would have blown up his spot. He needed somebody else that they didn't think was in conjunction with the library trying to get Q to open it up. Mm -hmm. And Hillary, I would not feel bad about that at all because, as Jason said, he pushed the narrative forward maybe just as much as anyone else. The problem is we just hate him as a character, but uh, that happens, right? Nicole says, gotta give it to Q. He's in a place where he knows he isn't the hero, has no delusions about Fillory's magic or fantasy, and has been beaten down over and over again. Yet, he pulls out the love for Fillory he knew before. As a lover of the stories, I totally connected with this. That's why everyone who read the stories felt so tied to them, Mm. though. And this is a big reason why I want you to read them, because I think you'll get it. It's a really fine line to depict a character who is living in that dark place, the place of being really depressed and never feeling good enough, never feeling like you're going to find that thing. Plus, bad shit keeps happening to them, much as it does in our TV series. How do you keep a reader believing in that and connecting to the authenticity while at the same time not losing them to, this is too effing dark, man. We need some wins. And Love Grossman does that in a masterful way. Do you think... Q most relates to a lot of people? Oh, a thousand percent. Me too. Yeah. For me, for sure. I'm always doubting myself. There's always someone better. In web design, there's always, you can look at some web designs and be like, God, I can't do that. Or in drawing, or when I played baseball, I was all state, but there was people in, once I went to states, way better than me. Like, oh my God, is this, did I just barely make it here? And then with the podcast, there's so many podcasts out there. I think we're doing good. But if you start comparing yourself, you'll start doubting. It's like we've said before, you want to be the center of the story you are for yourself, but maybe you're not the center of anyone else's story. Mm. And that idea that I'll be happy when 
when I get this thing, it'll make me happy. When I find fillery, it'll make me happy. And even if those things happen, it doesn't. And then you're left with what now? And Quentin had to face those struggles in a very real way in the books. Both Todd and Elliot Todd, and is this because of the name? (laughs) Think we need to give a shout out to Todd. If it weren't for him sending the book teen, Fogg wouldn't be able to get into the poison room. That has to count for something, right? He didn't tot it up. He did well. He's fun. I like when he's on screen. Yes, absolutely. But his name's Elliot. Him and Dean Fogg together are a good combination. Rebecca says she's not mentally prepared for the finale. As much as I hate to say it, I think Penny greets Elliot at the underworld. There it is. There it is, yeah. Julia's body is indestructible by being a not-god, but Elliot's isn't. Also, Quentin's speech was everything and hit me in the feels hard. Yeah, I'm back and forth now between Katie and Elliot, but I think it's likely it's one of them. How is the show going to bring him back? They can't do another Penny thing. That's that's the reason I was pushing Katie, because you can still see her and get to her through the Penny 40 timeline. I don't know how you'd play that if it was Elliot. And I don't think he can go out without having those last moments with Margot. Along those lines, Brian Kay says, what about Margot? Loving her werewolf, goldfish, Nemo enough to stick by him when the time came to try to save Elliot. At least we finally have a good use for that eye. See, so Brian liked it. Liked the eye thing. I didn't mind it as much as you did. It really got to me. I'm glad some people felt it worked. It's just that she was so heroic getting those ice axes that I felt like it was only fair that she would wield it in the final moment. It's a major gear downshift. In energy is what's hard to wrap my head around. But I love this comment from Patrick. Starbucks mostly is the hardest I've laughed all week. (laughs) Me too. It was perfect. He delivers those lines tremendously. Melly says also funniest quote for me was, Quentin can't get it up for fillery. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that one. Yeah, Yeah. are we all screwed if he can't? And she says amazing performance by Jason Ralph. The scene of him yelling at the plant summed up his feelings so accurately, but I can't help wonder why didn't he think about his time with Elliot during a day in the life? That's a good point. There were some really positive things to come out of Fillory, but that is just so Quentin to only focus on the things that didn't live up to his expectations. There you go. Wow. Plus, I have to think that anything related to Elliot right now is just a big ball of fear and sadness. Yeah confusion what's going to happen next but that speech would have been even more beautiful if you added that where he says i love fillery i've lived a whole happy life in fillery with elliot and no matter what else happens i'll always have that perfect Mm. thank you melly we also got a couple of really great emails unfortunately the one from maggie's i can't read on air and she knew it because there's a lot of potential spoilers in there but she's got some great theories about how this all might tie in that i happen to agree with And typical Brian S. says, I had this really cool, funny, sarcastic tweet I was going to say about how the show was awesome and I was able to watch it before the podcast, that I loved Q and all the character development. When I typed it out, it was more than 140 characters, so I knew I had to email. But now that I'm writing, I've forgotten. Hopefully you'll still read it on the podcast (laughs) this week. And Chris will say, oh no, this will be a thing now, won't it? When she's reading a (laughs) Brian tweet on the cast. I feel like we know Brian now, just right? just this on purpose now. <laughs> and Jennifer, always with the great ideas, says she was re-watching season one. Christopher Plover said something interesting about the wellspring, that it gave birth to Ember and Umber. I'm wondering if the movement of the waters, this is before this episode, has to do with their not being there to keep the balance between order and chaos. Ember and Umber, that is. 
She's still not convinced that Quentin's destiny and repair of minor objects doesn't have to do with ultimately being the savior of Fillory and bringing it back to what it was meant to be, which means restoring Ember and Umber somehow. I think next season is going to be about Julia embodying an old god and saving the minor gods from Everett. Question is, without a god part, how does he become a god? It would make a lot of sense if the god that was tied to an area was sort of essential in maintaining the balance. We had believed that perhaps they never truly die. So maybe there is a way that they're brought back and that's what's necessary to keep the balance working there. Or some other answer along those lines. Something has to put this thing back to rights. And I do think Quentin's going to be a big part of that. Yeah, but we can't forget that Ember was an asshole. It felt like he didn't care. And he played with his characters on Fillory. But I guess if something like this was going down, well, if it's someone more powerful than him, he hides. Because we saw that with But it was somehow preserved this long. And it did take the two of them, the balance of both being there. Somehow that energy was able to keep things in line. Since they've been gone, it all just sort of feels like it's unraveling. There's no stopper to what can happen now. And we had definitely wondered at the same thing, how is Everett going to manipulate this to become a god? I do think that's going to be next season material. She also thinks it's Elliot on the other side of that door. Oh, wow. Yeah. A lot of people are going with that. And that just takes us to our character review. I really struggled to find anything to cover this week, as we already talked about twins in mythology last time. And then, Jason, you gave me a really wonderful idea. Once when there was no actual gods to talk about, we talked about the stones in mythology, which was a really interesting research project. This time we saw both insects and plants. And you asked me, well, have there been stories about that in mythology? I said, well, gee, I can think of a few, but I'm not sure. It turns out insects have appeared in mythology from around the world since ancient times. Among the biggest groups are the bee, the butterfly, cicada, dragonfly, praying mantis, and scarab beetle, which was my first thought. The myths may present the origins of a people or of their skills. Other myths concern the nature of the gods and their actions or how they could be appeased. And a lot of them tell of transformations, such as between the soul of a living or dead person. For example, in ancient Egyptian mythology, the sun god Ra is seen to roll across the sky each day, transforming bodies and souls. Beetles of the scarab family, dung beetles, roll dung into a ball as food and as a brood chamber to lay their eggs. For these reasons, the scarab was seen as being a symbol of the heavenly cycle, the idea of rebirth and regeneration. That's why they were worshipped. In fact, the Egyptian god Ra was often depicted as a scarab beetle or a beetle-headed man believing that they renewed the sun every day before rolling it across the horizon, then carried it out through the other worlds after sunset. So this was just a cycle that kept repeating. And going to our Greek mythology, the goddess Aphrodite tells the legend of how Eos, the goddess of the dawn, requested Zeus to let her lover live forever as an immortal. Zeus granted the request, but because she forgot to ask him to also make Titan is ageless. He never died, but he did grow old. And eventually he became so tiny and shriveled that he turned into the first cicada. Oh, wow. And that's maybe in my mind what I was picturing happening with Plover. Not that he was going to turn into a cicada, but (laughs) that kind of progression. You could grow old and experience all these terrible things, but you could never die. That's so rude, though, of the god. 
Like, just, you know she wants him to live forever well, with her. Well, the biggest asshole in all these stories was Zeus. <laughs> he was just terrible. More specifically, though, I was looking for how insects could be worked into healing, to potions, the idea that we saw with our characters swallowing the live insects to protect themselves from the poison room. There are tons of stories, of course, about medicinal plants. One interesting one, though, the termite was thought throughout a lot of cultures to cure a variety of diseases. Typically, the mound or the portion of the mound was dug up and the termites and the components of the mound were ground together into a paste, which was then applied topically to affected areas or sometimes mixed with water and consumed. Mm. They thought it cured a lot of conditions, including ulcers, rheumatoid arthritis, and anemia. It was also suggested to be just a general pain reliever and health improver. Grounding up and eating termites. That's almost close to as gross as what we saw here. (laughs) And we won't go into the whole plant category, but belief in sacred plants was common. There was a notion that the plants or animals were manifestations of the gods or gods in other forms. We talked about that for Egyptian mythology. Some plants were considered magical, like the lotus tree, while others were thought to actually be alive, like the mandrake. So it's fair to say that the magician's writers have definitely done some extensive research. For sure. And are tying all these things in, and I love that. And the more we learn, and we've talked about this in our Patreon bonus, about plants and how they're actually alive and they'll warn other plants if someone's coming or something is coming and and might kill them. They'll warn other plants through the wind. And the plants, some plants will make themselves taste disgusting. Some plants will make themselves poisonous during that time. And amongst other things. Never seen ones that reacted to emotions in this way. No. Although it does make me think a little bit of the Happening movie. Yeah, I remember that. And also, I remember growing up where, and I think this is false, but they would say if you love your plants and you talk to them, they'll be healthier. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, that was an old thing. We do see a lot of sentient trees throughout stories. And of course, we got the iteration of that with dryads and the living forest and fillery, but not as many with plants. You ever in the woods alone? They feel alive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the problem is we have less and less woods. And less connection to that to be able to understand it. For sure. Oh, we're getting into bonus territory. <laughs> Let's move along to our final section, which is the last spoiler section for this season. Before we go into the spoiler section, I want to thank all the Clatchers for being a part of this ride. It's the second to last episode. want to remind you yet again, we have Patreon there. If you want to help us out, go ahead and join there. You'll get more content from us, more different types of content, really fun water cooler talk. And just a lot more of what this is. If you sign up now, you'll get this month's topic, which is going to be about the history of April Fool's Day, as well as some of the best pranks that were ever played. And as a fun bonus, you can find out exactly what makes Christina and Jason annoying, according to our astrological sign. Ooh. Don't forget to rate and review, tell your friends about us. And if you're going to go shopping on Amazon, go to our website first, coffeeclatchcrew.com. Click on our Amazon link. Doesn't cost you more. Just makes that huge company give us a little bit of money. Every little bit counts. We hope you stay tuned for next week for our coverage of the finale, the last Magicians episode, and that you'll continue to join us over on the other free casts. Yep. Sunday night, we'll be doing an instant coffee episode for Game of Thrones. That one's going to be a tough one. There's so many Game of Thrones podcasts out there. 
But if you truly love the way we do it, let your friends know that the CKC is the team to join. On with our spoilers. It's going to be the briefest one I have done so far for this season. Essentially all I know... Episode 13, the finale, is called The Seam. There's been a lot of back and forth about that. We discussed it previously. The initial title was No Better to Be Safe Than Sorry, which even the idea that they were playing around with that, I think Mm. is going to tie into what our plot line is about. Yeah. But we also discussed our Clatcher's thoughts on what The Seam could be. One of our Clatcher's wrote in a while ago to say that they had the heads up on the episode title change. And given everything that we're seeing with Julia now, I think it's all going to roll together. Their synopsis, confusing as ever, is Quentin and Josh get cake and Quentin reflects on his actions. Another cake, huh? Yeah, and Quentin seemingly is going to do something that he doesn't know how to feel about. I think it's unlocking this reservoir right here. He's going to look back and think, well, fuck, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Hmm. Well, very interesting. I am very curious on how they're going to sum this all up. I hope they do it correctly. And if need be, let some things hang for next season. Well, they're going to have to have a lot hanging out there. (laughs) Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.